Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. This is a such a fun episode for me to share with you. These are two live shows that I did the California International Marathon this past weekend there with C.J. Albertson, a pro runner for Brooks, who you've heard on this podcast maybe many times as part of the Road to the Trial series, who ended up winning the California International Marathon and doing so in dramatic fashion, taking the lead with two miles to go. And Mary Johnson, both of these interviews were done uh, before the race. So just a quick heads up. I just give you the head up, the heads up about CJ, who took the lead two miles ago, had a fantastic effort. And I will say, <laughs> in typical CJ fashion, which is to say he lives a very untypical running life, 4.30 that day, he ended up doing a was it 7.8 mile run at 7.30 pace while pushing a stroller. This was in Fresno, California, <laughs> on his drive back, after his drive back from the race. CJ, just a classic character in the running scene and a tremendously gifted runner who's proving to be also one of the most consistent runners in America. Also, Mary Johnson, who is the uh, the lead at, at uh, Lift, Run, Perform, which is a fantastic coaching service who have done these really um, really special running groups based on time goals and things like that at some high-profile marathons. We talked a lot about that and her own recovery from injury, which has taken years. And Mary was um, really excited about running CIM, but understandably conservative about what exactly did this race have in store for her because she's coming back from a prolonged injury bout. And I'm happy to report that Mary Johnson ran 308 at CIM ran incredibly well. And as you'll hear, she, that is not, that was not on the, her, uh, her list of goals. She was thinking much more conservatively and understandably. So, like I said, I want to give a huge shout out to ASICS for sponsoring all the CIM content that we did. We did a bunch of live shows at the event. We did some post-race interviews that you'll hear later on this week. And next week, Eight to ten interviews in total, all brought to you by ASICS. Head over to ASICS.com today to check out the best gear. I love their running shoes. I'm going to be doing a a, um, a workout today, a fartlek workout. I'm going to be wearing the ASICS Evo Ride Speed. I love these shoes. They are like a really lightweight daily trainer. They can handle just about anything. I love them for fartleks because I can wear them in the warm-up. I can wear them in the cool-down. And I can run super fast in them. If you don't like changing shoes on the run, I can't recommend these shoes highly enough. They're absolutely fantastic. And over the course of the next two weeks, I'm going to talk, about, talk to you about all the other ASICS running shoes that I love. And actually... Every single one of them, except for the ASICS Nova Blast 4, I purchased with my own money. I just love these shoes so much, and I bought them before ASICS even signed this deal with me because I'm such a big fan of theirs. So with that being said, we're going to hear from CJ Albertson first and then Mary Johnson. Unfortunately, with the audio on CJ, the, um, the audio at CIM cut out my first question. The first question to him was, and you'll hear him dive into dive into it mid-answer, actually, uh, in the audio was, as a California resident, as someone who lives close by, and someone who's done this race, this would be his third time running CIM, what does this race mean to him as a local? So, with that being said, let's get into my conversations with CJ Albertson, and I also do this conversation with Peter Bromka as well, who joined me on the stage at CIM, and Mary Johnson. Um, I don't know, it's just, it's just fun, because it's like, it's like home, um, it's it's really similar to my hometown of Fresno. I mean, the whole kind of valley is, <laughs> yeah, it's basically <laughs> basically all the same in in, in my mind. But um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's just relaxing because I can you know I just drove up uh, Friday afternoon and um, I don't know, it just it just feels natural. And then you see obviously a lot more people that that you know um, and, and people from Fresno and and from the valley. So it, it's just fun having that kind of hometown feel. Um, and just it's yeah, it's relaxing too. Right. And I know this has been a, a big year for you, not only as someone who looks towards February of next year, getting ready for the Olympic trials, but also the expanding family, right? Yeah, we had our uh, second child um, in the middle of September. Um, so, yeah, have have two now. So it's been it's been fun. <laughs> so um, how, has, how has that affected marathon training, having having that second child so far? Um, Not quite as much as I expected it to. Um, I think, I mean, a big, a lot of that is, is my wife. Cause with the, with the, the newborn, um, she does, you know, the vast majority of, of the work with, with our newborn. Um, I have a little bit more responsibilities with our toddler, but he's, 
he's fun and and loves to run and wrestle and do everything that boys do um so yeah it, it, i kind of get like to be with the fun crazy kid which is a little bit more my my style and then my wife does a lot of stuff with the with the baby so um it, it works now coming into this year as you were say at, let's, let's go back to last year at this time right you're trying to plan out your 2023 in terms of the races that you wanted to do to get ready, not only because you want to do those races, but in conjunction with getting ready for the Olympic trials, what were some of the things that you wanted to consider, whether it was a spring, summer, or fall? And what were some of the things that like that led you to the decisions from a race choice perspective that fed into that? Um, yeah, I mean, doing a big fall marathon was going to be tough this year since we were having, you know, our child and, um, you know, you never really know exactly how that's going to go. So, um, most of the big, you know, real big fall marathons are either October, like Chicago or early November, um, for New York. And, uh, just with my, uh, work and then having the two kids, it just, it, that just seemed like too much. Like it was going to take a lot of s stress and energy to do that. So, um, yeah, so I just kind of stayed local. I did the two cities marathon in Fresno in November. Uh, and then I'm doing this, but it's like not having to travel and have those big, long events, uh, just make it mentally easier. Um, and if something doesn't go well, you can kind of just not do it and it's not a big deal. Um, but this race in particular, like it's, it's easy mentally, it's easy travel. Um, but it also allows me to, to try to run the last five to 10 kilometers fast. Cause I'll have, you know, pretty good competition and to try to win, you know, you have to run that last five to 10 K really well, which is what you have to do in the, in the trials to qualify. So, um, it's not quite as competitive as the trials, but it's kind of the same setup, um, you know, where you have to run really fast at the end to achieve the goal that you want. So it's kind of like a good prep for that. I want to shift a little bit to thinking about the course. And also I, I've your, I think a lot of people know you for, a few shining, uh, almost an hour on international TV. So when, when I talk, uh, I coach athletes for CIM, I always say like, you know, run your race, run the hills, how you feel, like really check in with yourself. And you uh, are very famous for running from Hopkinton towards Boston, in the leading the Boston Marathon, just like checking in, you know, running your own race. And I was, I think everyone kind of wants to know, like, what's that feel like, A, to be out at leading one of the biggest races in the world? And also, I, I think... For those of you who saw it online, you know, he's, you, you shook out your arms a couple of times. You're like out there just like doing your own thing, which I thought was kind of wonderful. And uh, could you lead us through that? And how do you think about it? Um, I mean, first leading a, a really big race is a lot of fun. <laughs> so if you can I mean, do it, everyone I, should try to do that. Yeah. I don't know what your schedule is like tomorrow. for 2024. <laughs> yeah, I, I recommend it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's a lot of fun. And then I think, I think in all races, you have to have that balance of, um, running in a way that you enjoy and that is fun for you and that fits your style and your personality. But that also has a level of, of realism and, and that's realistic. And that is, uh, that, uh, works with what your body can actually handle. Um, and so yeah, just having that balance of, of having fun, just running what feels good, but also knowing like, okay, what paces can I actually handle so that, you know, my last half isn't miserable. Um, yeah, it's just having that balance. And um, sometimes that can be difficult because you don't know exactly what that is. But hopefully your training gives you a rough idea of like, I like to have like ranges like this is my upper end of my pace. Like, so if I'm feeling really good, it's like, okay, I can run this fast, but I'm going to try to not go too much faster than that. Um, and then obviously you're, you know, you have the pace that you're trying not to run slower than either. But I, I don't usually have that issue. <laughs> well, I think Me either. That's what a lot of people what you often hear in a marathon is oh you know i went out there and i tried to run the pace that i was familiar with but it was a different day i had packs around me like just the excitement of the day so like can you talk us through like how do you think about that there's people around you maybe that you're like i trust that guy i'm gonna stick close to him or i, I don't trust this person's energy do you go like think about your competitors like that or is it just like fully within yourself um a little bit, but you never really know what shape people are in and, and what they're going to run. Um, but I mean, we have watches, so like, you know what pace you're running. So it's kind of easy to figure out like within the first couple of miles, like, okay, like we're running this pace or this is going to be a pack that, that I can run with or, or that's running the pace that I kind of want to. Or 
or maybe no one wants to run the pace that I want to run. So then I, I kind of am just going to go run my own pace. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it it just depends. Every race is a little bit different, but you usually figure it out within the first mile or two. Um, one thing I hear from a lot of first time CIM runners afterwards is like, wow, the there were more hills than I. I thought this was like a downhill flat, like roller coaster. Um, so what's it like um, towards the front when you're in that lead pack? How have you thought about the hills now that you've run it a couple times like uh i don't think about the hills too much because they're almost all in the first like 10 miles um which hopefully you're feeling relatively good the first 10 miles and you're not really pushing super hard anyway so um i kind of just run them kind of keep the similar effort whatever the pace is that that's what it is but you have so much downhills with those hills that your your overall pace ends up evening out or being even a little bit quicker so i don't really thing about the hills um because no one's really trying to make big moves at mile six so <laughs> it doesn't yeah good advice you've made big moves at mile six <laughs> yeah i don't know if they're moves but yeah so what is your relationship to your watch in a race like in, in some of these races maybe it, it, it evolves over time and maybe it depends on the race and some of the competition in it but how do you usually approach the feeling of marathon pace or that marathon pace range that you did a great job of describing versus checking in to see exactly what the pace is at certain moments? Um, for the most part, I can, I can feel like what pace I'm running, even if I'm running a little bit faster, but it feels easy. I know I'm running faster. Um, so there's very few times where I look at my watch and I'm like, Oh, that's like way different than what I expected. Um, unless I'm really tired, then sometimes I'm like, how is it that slow? But, um, but yeah, so, I mean, for the most part, like sometimes you'll look at your watch and if it's like 15 seconds faster than what you think, then it's like, okay, maybe you need to like actively pull it back for a mile or two. Um, but yeah, I typically don't have that. The only exception is Boston. Um, like when we were running with Kipchoge this year and it was like, you're running in the four thirties, the first few miles, uh, you kind of know it's too fast, but then there's no, the other, I don't know. There's just different groups. And so you kind of just have to just kind of be like, I don't know. Let's, let's see. <laughs> Is there a, uh, a point in the race when you think, okay, pushing the watch aside, not going to look at that anymore. I mean, you're there to win potentially you're there to finish on the podium at a major. Is there a point when you just say like, there's nothing there for me. I need to focus on the race. And when is that in the race? Um, I mean, that that's really like most of the races, I guess. Um, yeah, because I mean, for the most part, like I'm I'm just trying to win or place as high as I can. Um, in a race like tomorrow, I'll probably be work looking at my race or looking at my watch a little bit more often because I'll more than likely be doing some of the, the, the pacemaking in a sense. Um, but it's more just like I'll kind of like casually look at it more as like a um, as like a comfort thing. So like, I know I'll feel good. And then I look at my watch. Oh, 457. That's exactly what I thought it was. And it kind of just like makes you feel comfortable. Cause you're like, I know I've done this before. I know I've raced this before. It's not that you're trying to get your body to run an exact pace. It's more that like, when you look at your watch, you're like, Oh yeah. Okay. I'm within the range that I know my body can handle. So it's more like reassurance. It's like, I've done so many miles at this pace. I can keep going at this pace. Um, or even sometimes when like maybe towards the end of the race, like mile 20, 21, I start to get a little slower. I'm like, okay, like 505s. Like I know I can run 50, whatever, whatever pace you want to say. Like, you know, that. like I've run this pace so many times, like even though I'm really tired and kind of dying, like I can lock in and run this pace and hold this pace. So it's kind of like, for me, it gives me more comfort. Like, and it reminds my brain you've done this before. Like your body is physically capable of it. So you can just relax and just kind of do it. So earlier this fall, you ran the two cities marathon, your, your hometown of Fresno, Fresno represent over here in the front row. Um, I guess, obviously you talked before about the growing family certainly changed maybe how you would have normally approached the fall in terms of maybe race selection. But I'd love to hear about that race experience for you as someone who has, you know, run all different marathons, some of the biggest marathons in the world and having that, that hometown race experience. And, and just tell us more about, about that day, what that day was like for you. Um, yeah, that day was, uh, mainly just trying to run, um, a fast time to kind of hit like the, the Olympic minimum standard time, which I was a few seconds off of doing, but, 
Um, but yeah, it was mainly for that. And then just running on your hometown is always, it's, it's always fun and nice. And I do a long run every Sunday at my hometown anyway. So it's a lot easier and a lot more fun to do. And, and at like this one, you get bottle stretch. support. There yeah. You go. Yeah, exactly. I didn't, yeah, I didn't have to set up my own tables. I got, I got people to do it for me and, uh, make sure everything was, you know, I got to run on clear roads, no traffic. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's just a lot of fun and you know, pretty much everyone out on the course, all the runners that are passing by, you pretty much have seen or know their name. So yeah, it's, it's fun. So you mentioned the Olympic minimum standard. So you ran 211.34 that day. Can you tell people what the Olympic minimum standard is and why that was something that was top of mind for you? Uh, how much time do we have? No. <laughs> uh, it's basically it's, uh, it's a time that you need to where if you haven't, if you haven't qualified for the Olympics by hitting a, a time standard or by a world rankings placement, you can still go if you've hit that time and are a part of a country that have had three people that have hit that mark or not the minimum mark, but three people that have qualified in other ways. So um, at the end of the day, I'll probably have enough world rankings points that my times won't really matter, but it's more just like of a, a, a secure, like set things. Like, so if the USA has three people that have, have officially qualified, um, for the Olympics, then if I'm top three and have the minimum time, there's no looking at world rankings. It's like I, I automatically go. Um, so it's more of an assurance thing, but it you don't necessarily need it. Right. Now, one more question about that, because the running nerds in, that, in the room might want me to ask this question. They might look at your results and say, hey, hold on. You ran a minute faster than that at Boston. How come that doesn't count if that was below the standard? Yeah, there's uh, they're basically a criteria for which courses count for. Uh, time standards, Boston, because it's um, has too much of a net elevation drop, it doesn't count. Um, same with CIM, like this race, it, it counts for world rankings points, but it doesn't count for achieving time standards. Right, and I think the, isn't the point to point part part of the uh, equation as that's, well? That's part Sometimes. of that's part of world records, but it 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 would still count for time standards for qualifying. So there's, yeah, you can't set a world record on a point to point. Like Grandma's is an example where Grandma's wouldn't count for a world record, but it would count for your time standards for like a world championships or Olympics. Gotcha. All right. Does anyone in the stands have any uh, follow-up questions on the world standard <laughs> procedures? <laughs> I think you explained it better than I've ever heard it. Um, I'm curious. So the trials are in, or are in Orlando in a little over two months. Um, you're, you know, you've been pretty public about different ways that you train, different things you've tried, anything uh, February in Orlando that you have cooking up, like things you're thinking of introducing to your training for this big race coming up. Um, I don't think anything new. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll be, I'll definitely be in the sauna and doing some like hot runs on my treadmill, just, you know, in case it's a, a real hot day or hot and humid day in, um, in Orlando. But other than that, it's just kind of normal, normal marathon training and, and being prepared for different types of conditions. Cause Again, we don't really know exactly what it'll be. Um, but yeah, other than that, nothing crazy. I mean, it's a flat course, so it's a little bit different than training for Atlanta, where it was pretty hilly, so you, your training had to reflect that. Um, but you know, for the for the trials, it's pretty standard. Flat marathon could be warm, but yeah, you just yeah. And now, what did you learn from your trials experience several years ago? You ran at the trials, you ran well. What did you learn from that experience, either in the race prep or even on race day, that you can you know internalize and take with you into this cycle? Um, I don't know if there's like a, like a specific thing where I'm like, oh, like I, I really need to remember that for the 2024. I think it just more in general that um, that I can run and compete at the front and and be top three or win the race. Um, and then also just knowing what the field is like, like running in a, in a very big field with lots of people at, at the water, uh, at the bottle stops. And, um, just kind of knowing that and, and having done it before, um, makes you a little bit more relaxed and comfortable because you know what to expect. Um, but there, there isn't anything super big. I mean, it's a, it's a race, um, just like any other marathon, but yeah. And I think being making, just making sure because the field is so big that, you can be 
you know, kind of relaxed, but also being aware of what's happening so you can you can cover moves when the right people make them, I guess. All right. I have two questions I want to ask you because they've been asked when you weren't in the room. They've been asked on group texts that I'm on with my friends. So uh, bear with me. The first is last fall, you crushed a 50K, like absolutely demolished a 50K. And you came across the line like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so the video kind of went maybe minorly viral. Like, was he even happy? Was it like, I think most of us would be first, you finished the 50K, second, you crushed the time, and you seemed like something was up. You were nonplussed by your own epic performance. Um, I mean, there's like 50 people there, so I don't know. It, it, well, it, I, I mean, they're, they're, it's just like a kind of typical ultra race where it's like, it's just people that like running go run for a long time, which is great. That's what we all do. But um, yeah, I mean, it kind of felt like any other morning where like, there was people out, you know, walking on the trail. So like, just like if I'm running out on a regular park, like not a close course. So they're no, like, no, yeah, not a close course. And then, yeah, I mean, I just finished, and uh, I I had to drive to Sacramento because my places to be. Well, my my family wasn't even there. My wife was. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, my wife didn't show up, but she didn't. She had better things to do. No, well, my I kind of planned it a little bit last minute, and my wife was already going to our. Um, I don't know. My nephew was, I don't remember how old he was turning. It was his birthday party. So they were going to Sacramento. So I went from the race to Sacramento. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just kind of a, just a how part you, of my, how do you feel about the 50 K? I mean, it's gone pretty well, I would say. Yeah. I think it'd be fun to have like real, like a, a lot bigger races in it. I mean, there's the 50 K world championships, which is, is kind of the one race where it's like everyone's brought together and, and they, run it fairly fast um but which i was going to do last year and then it got canceled and rescheduled to like yeah it was uh, in this, india like, last yeah, month yeah and it just that's like that's not gonna work so um yeah if there was more big 50ks i think it'd be fun but right now that's it's not really um a big event all right so my second question is uh if you don't follow cj on strava you definitely should and certain times you'll post something on strava and i always just think did CJ like have a moment where he looked and he's like, well, this is really going to ruffle some feathers. <laughs> like, I mean, there's times you'll, I'll look at you longer and I'm like, is that in kilometers? Like that was so fast. Like how fast you just went out and crushed. Or are you just like, yeah, I mean this, I'm a pro runner. Here we go. Um, yeah. I think the, is the, the question, part, how, yeah. What's the question? Is the question, does CJ know how awesome he is? Is, like, that, is that the question? I mean, there, there's many pro runners out there and I guess we just don't know what they're, doing because they don't really put it online and you're like yeah here we go um because you look and if you look at the comments people are like you know head exploding emoji oh my god emoji and it's like i don't know if that's just how it if you're used to that now is it just normal for you uh yeah i think it's no normal for me um like i like before the trials i want to have some like 20 plus mile runs like in the mid 450s um which i feel like people's minds will be like what like That'll like, cause on, you know, whenever you have the four in front of it, it looks a lot faster. Um, but I feel like that's just kind of where I should be in like a natural progression. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's somewhat more normal than you would think. Um, I also train like at sea level. Most people train at altitude. So you have, you know, maybe a 15, 20 second conversion there, depending on how high they're, they're training. Um, and then, you know, a lot of like international athletes, like you're not following them on Strava. Um, but like Kelvin Kiptum, I don't know how accurate it was, but his sample training plan had uh, like two 40 kilometer runs close to race pace, which who knows what that is. Maybe he's running 445 to 450 pace. <laughs> um, he's at 7,000 feet. So maybe like 455 to five flat. But yeah, and he's doing that twice a week, apparently. I don't know. But um, but yeah, I think it's more. No I'm sure like the Japanese, like they're all doing that. Um at some point so it's probably not as uncommon um and i think most people that are running tomorrow have probably done similar things where they've ran you know maybe 20 miles 10 to 15 seconds off of their marathon pace and it, that wasn't really that crazy they've just done that so it just looks different when you're like well these paces are because even when i'll look at like a, a 26 30 10k guy and he's they're doing like mile repeats at like in like the four o's i'm like what the heck this is crazy but it's like that's just 
that's just their fitness. So it's actually not that crazy. Now on the podcast, you have really took and taken deep dives into the science of training. You obviously study it a lot. With that said, again, you've also experimented with your own training. So how much do you balance between the best practices that you've studied while also having either the spontaneity or the willingness to kind of do the N equals one sample of like, just because something's the best practice doesn't mean it's going to work best for me. Maybe I should try out different methodologies uh, along the way. Yeah, I think that's similar uh, to what I said kind of about like racing and and early pacing. Um, You have to have that balance of like doing what is uh, fun for you, what you enjoy, what fits your uh, natural personality and style. Um, But that's also within like a general range of like what's realistic to achieve your goal. And so um, a lot of my training will reflect like what uh, I enjoy doing, what's fun for me, what I'm naturally kind of good at and can do with kind of lower what what seems more feasible for me to do um, or that is just like, this seems like a fun experiment to try um, and that that makes me excited. But then also having it within a range of like, okay, well, this is still, this is still somewhat of like sound training principles and it, I'm doing enough to like uh, that. That's similar to what other people have done or like what's been studied to be effective. And so it's, it's within that range, but allows me to also do things that, that fit me a little bit better. All right. I have one last question, Peter. Do you have a question before we finish up? All right. One of the first podcasts I did with you, it, you relished the idea of kind of like the underdog nature of your standing in the elite community. This was several years ago. And you're like, all right, I want to show people like that. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing you here, but you made it clear like, Hey, I feel like I'm, I deserve to be at the front, but I'm more of an underdog. I don't have the pedigree of some of these other runners. I want to show that I deserve to be there now. We're several years removed from that. You've been extremely consistent as a marathoner. and You've shown that you're one of America's best marathoners for years now. So as you've made that progression, has it changed your mentality in terms of where you see yourself in the elite field or anything along those lines? Um, yes and no. I feel like it's changed my, my – actually, I feel like my mentality is almost the same, except now instead of feeling kind of like that underdog on like the – the national level it's like the world level so um in any national level like 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 tomorrow like tomorrow you know i think i'm gonna win um so i don't have that mentality but like in a um and at the olympic trials it's like i i feel like i should be top three or, or be competing right there um and you know have a shot to win that too but then at like the world stage like when i line up in boston like i don't think kipchoge knows my name or cares or, or any of those guys that are running, you know, under 203. So, um, and which, um, yeah. So like, that's what I feel like eventually, like I should be closer to that, that level and competing on that level, but I'm not there yet. And same kind of in, in 2019, when we first talked, I probably thought I was closer to the national level than I currently am to the, the world level. But, um, I feel like in time, that's what, Yeah. All right. One last follow up. Has that kind of been a metaphor for how you've approached running in the past in terms of like, all right, seeing that next group ahead and say, all right, I want to get to that group. So whether it's middle school, high school, you know, younger 20s, has that always been kind of part of the motivation for you is getting into that next level? Uh, yes, but I feel like it's not necessarily getting into that next level. It's more that like. I'm. I'm in that next level or I should be in that next level. It's more like viewing myself in that next level, but I'm, I'm just, I haven't ran the performances that everyone else in that level is doing. So like, I, it's more like a, you know, if you're in sixth grade, everyone else is in sixth grade, but you're doing the fifth grade math homework. Cause you just haven't, you know, you're, you're whatever. CJ, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, not only today, but on the Rimley Runner podcast so many times. I recommend people going back, listening to some of those episodes. CJ has always shown such candor and honesty about his training and racing. Thank you so much for coming here today, and best of luck tomorrow. Best of luck tomorrow. Thank you. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening to that part with CJ Albertson. Myself and Peter Bromka. We're going to hear from Mary Johnson in a second. Before we do, I want to give shout outs to two brands that I absolutely love. 
The first one is Chanji. I love the Chanji attire. Today is gonna to be a cold day here in Rhode Island. It's around 27 degrees for my workout today, and I'm excited to be wearing the waffle long sleeve shirt. This thing is so warm. It's so soft, it's so comfortable, and it's gonna be the perfect workout shirt for me underneath my Zephyr windshell, which is another thing that I purchased from John G a couple of weeks ago. It's just an incredibly comfortable shirt that I like to wear around the house when I'm not actually using them in my running. John G has a five-year run guarantee. Head over to johng.com and use code RAMBLING to save 15% on some of the best, softest, and longest-lasting running attire in the running industry. Also, this is brought to you by V.O2. V.02 is the running app that I have used for over five, six years now to schedule my own runs and to schedule the runs of all of my athletes. Now, if you're looking for an app as we get into the new year, you have a, you know, you're, say you're an athlete, right? Say you're not coached and you want to be able to schedule, organize, and set up your training in a way that makes sense. Well, then this app is paid for you. It was created by the science behind legendary running coach, Jack Daniels. This guy is an absolute legend. And once you set up your profile, you enter a recent race time or what your current fitness is, you're going to see a drop-down menu of all the paces that align with your fitness. So you don't have to guess like, okay, I want to be doing threshold work. What is my threshold work? Well, if you have a recent race result, yeah, it's all set up for you, which is absolutely fantastic. And you can save workouts for yourself. The whole thing is so user-friendly. And that's why I use it not only to support the, my athletes as a coach from a Curdy Trained, I use it for my own running. In addition to that, you can save 20% on your annual subscription by using code RAMBLING at checkout. So head over to v.o2.com. That's V-D-O-T-O-2, the number two, dot com today and use code rambling. You'll see the link in the show notes. Hey folks, my name is Matt Chittam and I'm the host of the Rambling Runner podcast, also a member of Relay. And today at the one o'clock session here at the California International Marathon, I'm talking to my good friend, Mary Johnson, the head of List Run Perform. Mary, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. So one thing that your group has done uh, from a coaching perspective that's fairly unique, but has, got, has really taken off in terms of the success that you've seen are your sub three groups at races like at CIM. So can you talk to me about exactly how that started and just the thinking behind it before we dive into the details? Yeah. So in 2019, um, there was this idea of, well, maybe we can make these time-based groups. Um, and truly like I, on a, for, in a selfish reason, I never was able to break three. So I was like, what would I want if I wanted to break three? I would want a team. I would want swag. I would want people to support me. Um, so we developed our first team um, at the Indianapolis Marathon. And it was one of those things where myself and the co-coach at the time, we were like, I'm not sure if this could work. Seems like a good idea. And it was amazing. I mean, the girls were prepared. We had amazing results. Everyone PR'd. I want to say three quarters of them ended up breaking three. And it was ignited from there. We were very lucky. We had a photographer at the finish line that wasn't ours. We just happened to get some really great photos. And that was pure luck. Um, they were kind enough to just gift those photos. There were like four photos that they just gave to us. And they really helped propel the media surrounding the teams. So then obviously we couldn't do a group in 2020. But then in 2021, we came here to CIM. Similar result where we just saw community camaraderie and the more that the women lifted each other up, the better they did. Um, and since then, we've now expanded into a sub four team, a BQ team. We want to make it a bit more inclusive. We offer scholarships for those who might not be able to afford this opportunity because, you know, it is a bit pricey because you're getting the coaching, strength training, nutrition support, um, support from some brands. And this year, we're back at CIM. I'm not coaching this group. It's nice to kind of sit back and watch them go. Um, two of the coaches within Live From Perform, Stephanie Flippin and Mary Denholm, are the coaches this year. And I coached a group earlier this year at Chicago. It was a smaller group. It was our first time doing a sub three group at, um, at a major. And it had its own challenges, but um, the women did well. And then last weekend, actually, we are coming off a the sub four and BQ group face similar challenges just of keeping the team healthy and getting them to the finish line. But um, yeah, this is something that we want to keep repeating year after year. 
Now, now that you've had so many groups that have gone through this and people at different fitness levels looking at different times, what are some of the common themes that you see for people who really excel? Not, maybe excel isn't the right word, but do a great job of going after that stretch goal and making the most of that opportunity beyond just the basic fitness and athleticism, more like the personal characteristics and drive needed to take advantage of that sort of opportunity. Yeah, it's not just sub three. It's really anyone who wants to go after a really big goal. Um, it's the commitment to tap into all of the things that they might not be perfect at and also having the humility to realize like, I could use a little constructive criticism on this, or I need some support on nutrition. And so going into a training cycle with no ego and just saying like, I'm an open book, I want to improve. Um, and I think that's probably the biggest characteristic of the the people who have been on these teams. And then just people I coach doesn't regard, it doesn't matter what time you're going for. It's just that ability to be flexible and also just be humble and say, I have something to change and something to fix. And when you're able to get the support from professionals and change your lifestyle, that's the whole point of, of progress, right? You know, we, we sign up for running, we sign up to do this because we want to improve, not be rigid in our ways. And I think if you're flexible and willing to take, uh, take feedback, it ends up working out pretty well. And what's the group setting like in terms of the peer to peer connection that can help people in that situation? Because when you have these groups, one of the things that stands out for me as an outsider is just, this isn't just a relationship of a coach and an athlete working together you know, to, to, to reach a goal, which is, you know, fabulous in its own right. And it's something that you do with a lot of your athletes, but this group setting is a completely different thing just from a peer to peer perspective. So how have you seen that evolve and what are some of the best practices you've seen in that experience? It really depends on the group. Um, and we've seen this with the virtual setting again and again. Um, and so I can only speak to the virtual setting because that's all I do. Um, but I would imagine that in person is similar where, Sometimes we have groups that are really chatty. They want to get to know each other. I would say the the Breaking X team, that's what we call this group. They tend to be a bit more um, focused on the team element. Um, but we've done group training for something like a Chicago. And some people just want to get down to business. They don't really want to make a friend. Um, so it really is contingent on who's in the group. Oftentimes, I would say the most camaraderie-based groups um, have like one or two leaders that are kind of chatty or there'll be a moment in the cycle where there's an icebreaker. So like I know a few years ago, um, one, one of the teams I was coaching, they were like pretty quiet, not really sharing too many stories. And then one day we had a long run and somebody like pooped on our long run and was like, hey, I just want to share this story with everyone. And that was the catalyst of just getting everyone to just open up. And so you just need that one person, that one story. And the more that people can just relate to what's going on. Everyone else was like, oh yeah, that's happened to me before. Like, what a great topic. I think, I think we can all speak from experience on that one. <laughs> I mean, what a great topic to open up. Um, but yeah, so it just depends on who's in the group and who's willing to share. And then also there is, it like, there's a bit of the coaching aspect too to kind of spark the conversation. And it is not innate. I've seen from watching other coaches lead groups. And that's something that um, as you know, owning the business and leading this group, it's something that I want to work on further is that like the, you know, with coaching, we just care. Like that's the most important part of coaching. We just care about our athletes. We love them. But then to take that one step further and then create a community is maybe something that's a bit more learned. Um, so, you know, saying random stuff, saying, how was your run this weekend? Or even saying like, what book are you reading? It doesn't always have to be about running can help create that connection as well. And whether it's in the group setting or just someone looking to get the most out of themselves and maybe break through a plateau that they have reached at certain points in their athletic career, how important is like being vulnerable in those situations? Because it seems like that can also be a catalyst, whether it's the peer-to-peer -peer connection or being humble enough to say, okay, maybe I what I thought I knew about myself, what I thought I knew to, to take this to the next level isn't quite right. Or maybe I'm leaving some meat on the bone in terms of what I'm actually capable of if I kind of put some of these preconceived notions aside? Yeah, the vulnerability, but also the ability to um, cheer on other people and have no ego. And truly, like, I think it's inevitable that we're competitive with ourselves and we are competitive with other people. And to not make that a negative, toxic thing, as opposed to, I truly support you. I truly want to lift you up. And that's something I would say it can kind of be like wrangled by coaches. So that's as, as we start seeing people comparing each other, especially when it comes to time-based groups, 
they see somebody doing one workout and they're like, oh my gosh, well, that person's ready. I'm not ready. And so that is a rabbit hole. We've all been there. We've all compared our training. And so that's another piece that like, it actually can be really supportive if you end up, you know, cheering on the person and saying, wow, your four by two mile repeats. That was amazing. As opposed to letting it fester and be like, well, I didn't do it like her. Am I screwed? So it's a, a bit of a mindset flip when you're genuinely like you're doing this for the other person. And, you know, research shows when we're doing stuff for other people, it makes the effort a lot easier. We've seen Shalane and what she's done at Boston Marathon several years ago. Like I've run 5Ks on the track. I'm in a world of her. And the second that I actually turned to somebody on the track and focused on her, I said, get on my shoulder. The pain went away for me. So the more that we can help who's around us, it's an instant pain reliever. There you go. I love that. <laughs> let's let's pivot this to race day, right? So a lot of people who are listening to this right now live and uh, here in the expo, or maybe even later, they might be listening to this a year from now, getting ready for a different race. But how do you talk to your athletes on race day about managing those tough moments, which we all know are going to be there, hopefully later in the race, as opposed to earlier in the race for everyone who's going to be experiencing them, but going through those tough moments and taking what you just said of, of you know, using whether it's look, thinking about somebody else or any other um, tactics people can use to get the most out of themselves in those instances where it just starts to get, feel really uncomfortable and you really have to fight. It comes down to just believing in yourself and believing that all we can do on any given day is our best. And that's it. And we have time goals. We typically train with paces in mind. Um, but our body doesn't really care about that. And when we actually get to race day, anything could happen. And I think having the ability to step back and be like, well, I'm just going to do my best today. And I have to trust my training. I have to trust, like I have the data, you know, and I say that to my athletes on the phone before we go to a race, I say, I have data. I have an idea of where I think you could be, but I don't, I'm not in your body. I want to know how these paces feel. And that's how I usually start race talks because I don't, I don't know, like a marathon pace might've been overrun. Um, that's kind of the point of coaching. We try to prevent that. But, um, so I think that's the, the most important thing. If you can just line up and say, I'm going to do my best on any given day, that's it. That's all you can do. Yeah. That's really well said. When you have athletes going for a time goal, and this can be six hours, five hours. It can be even a random time. It can be 327 for all we know, right? But they have a time goal in mind and they're at say mile 18, 19, 20, and they can, they start to slip, right? So they can see whether it's their watch or a pace group or a group that they've formed, like a group that you're part of. And they say, oh my gosh, I'm starting to slip. I'm seeing my goal drift ahead of me as I start to fall back. How do you get people or how do you talk to people about reframing that moment and not going down this negative cycle that can really, you know, take a, you know, a negative moment in time and make it a negative race experience of extrapolated out over the next four, six to 10 miles. At that point in the race, your mind's a little blurry. So I feel like going back to mantras is really helpful. Just like you might even have a couple prepared, like pre-race visualization helps and just visualizing like, okay, shit may hit the fan. I'm going to feel not great. What am I going to do? And we have one or two mantras that you've already stored up. But then I've also been in races where like my mind's going black and I just come up with something super random. And that gets me through that point where you're just not thinking it's runner brain. Um, and again, you're running your own race. You want to be with your team. You want to be with other people, but truly like this, your, the finish line is yours. When you look at your result at the end, it's attached to your name. They don't know who else is running with you. So going back to like, this is my race. This is my training. I'm doing it for myself. I have nothing to prove except doing it for me. And that's like, that's not just on race day. That's like, I think truly like the, how to find joy with the whole progress of training. Which is a great opportunity to move towards your training, which you've done a great job of documenting on Instagram in terms of you've, you know, you are a really, really good athlete. With that said, you had a serious injury that you were coming back from. Can you detail that injury before we talk about the recuperation process and what it feels like to be the athlete recuperating while also leading other athletes who are trying to do their best and kind of the, the conundrum there sometimes where you don't feel quite as athletic when you're not you know, being your athletic self while still helping other people reach their goals? So my injury was complicated. Um, ultimately, it led to a surgery of the labrum and FAI. So shaving down the bone around the hip, repairing the labrum. Thankfully, it was just a repair where you can go in and just basically sew the labrum back together. The labrum is that 
thin ring of cartilage that lines your hip socket, essentially. Um, leading up to it was quite complicated, quite frustrating because there was a lot of diffuse pain, my back, my hamstring, my butt, it was kind of all over the place. And for years I really struggled. And with each baby, it got progressively worse. Um, and then about a little over a year ago, I got an updated MRI. And again, I've had lots of MRIs at this point, unfortunately. And, um, I had just had COVID. And so things were really kicked up. I was very, very, I was in a ton of pain. Um, and the MRI comes back and it was, as expected, a bit of a mess. Um, and the number one diagnosis was a pubic ramus stress reaction. And at the time I was like, this doesn't add up. Like I don't have pain there in my, in my pubic bone. Um, so with a lot of self-advocacy, I wound up in front of a surgeon and I was like, I have this deep hip pain. It's been there for years. I haven't been able to identify it. It's not my bone. I don't feel my bone at all. And he looks at me and he's like, you're a great candidate for the surgery. And I said, great. I had kind of already done the research leading into it. And um, I said, all right, when can we schedule it? And he's like, you know, you should go home. You should re research this. And he, I had come into the appointment with a, a list of questions. And he kind of stopped. And he was like, oh, you did your research already, didn't you? And I said, yes, I did. And I said, schedule me ASAP. And I had surgery 10 days later. Because I, at that point, I had been through so much that it, all the dots suddenly connected. As soon as I was given the wrong diagnosis and a bunch of other things, you know, it was the pelvis, it was the hip, it was this, that, and the other thing, but it, it became very clear to me all of a sudden. Um, and the surgery has been, well, the, the recuperation has been intense. Um, and it is something that I still very strongly feel like I'm still going through, um, with this hip surgery, with any hip surgery, they kind of say, take your recovery time and double it. Um, so I'm a year and four months out. I have somehow trained for this marathon in one piece. Um, but I still am planning to go back home and rehab some more. Like I don't feel 100%, particularly because I had such chronic issues for years. Um, so, you know, that's how I found the gift of coaching even more. I was coaching before I was injured, but like when I couldn't run, I, I just poured everything into everyone else I was coaching. So there's a bit of disassociation with being an athlete and then helping other people. Um, but again, it brings me joy to see other people doing well. So as much as I want it for myself, I filled the void in all of those years by watching other people. And those years of frustration that I was able to witness from afar, someone who follows you and follows you on Strava and on Instagram, and you can see the frustration that comes with chronic injury, especially when something that you so hard, so hard to identify where it's coming from and the prognosis that comes out of that. As you're going through that, how did that process make you a better coach as you work with athletes who either may go through something similar or maybe you can you know, stop something from escalating later or just from an empathy perspective of being like, Hey, I know how this feels and I can, you know, you know, work together with you through this. I mean, the empathy portion is very much intensified. Um, I was empathetic before this and now I'm very empathetic. Um, but then also like, I think when my athletes compl complain about something being wrong or not feeling well, like I had worked with people in the past that ignored that and, I'm not there. I'm not hyper like, oh my God, get the MRI ASAP. You know, I respect the process, but I also don't ignore it. I don't let people run through pain. Um, I encourage people to seek answers when people do have chronic injuries, as some do. Um, I check in. I'm like, if they're not seeing progress after four weeks of doing something, I say, okay, what are we doing next? There's someone I've worked with for about a year and like, she's been struggling with a long-term back injury. And I just said to her yesterday, I was like, okay, we seem to have gotten to a good place, but you're kind of flatlining. Do you, would you agree? What can we do next? So I think the self-advocacy part, um, I give athletes tips on how to go to the doctor. I give athletes tips on questions to ask. Um, unfortunately, since I've been through so many procedures, I know a lot about PRP. I know a lot about MRIs. I know a lot about So this wasn't things. the kind of professional development you were looking for. No, no. And by no, by no means, I, I mean, it's important to mention that I will always stay within my scope. That's one of my biggest core values. I know when to refer out. I know what I'm not an expert at. Um, but at the same time, it's helped me identify a lot of things. Um, one of my athletes is complaining about something in her foot. And I said to her, I'm like, you know, it could be this, it could be this. It really sounds like a neuroma, which is just basically like an inflamed um, nerve in your foot. And she said, she, she ended up getting it checked out. I said, please go get it checked out. And she comes back, it's a neuroma. And they were very vague symptoms. And she was like, honestly, I trust you more than a lot of these doctors because you've seen so many 
things. And again, it's a nice compliment. I'm not a doctor. I'm always going to refer out. But at the same time, like when you've been through lots of different injuries and you've heard about them with athletes, things you start to kind of pick up on what might be a bone injury, what might be a soft tissue injury. So you, and you also like, I, I make it a point to partner with physical therapists and learn too. If I wasn't in coaching, I would want to be a physical therapist. So I love, like, that's my nerdy joy is like reading about the body, reading about what physical therapists do. So it's made me, I have more education about injuries, unfortunately. That's part of the silver lining. And you also have an education in self-advocacy here, as you described. So how do you talk to you know the athletes that you work with or just people that you get to know about the fine line between being a self-advocate, going in and having as much information as possible, while also not necessarily like fishing for the diagnosis that you want, as opposed to, you know, understanding that these people might have a better understanding of what's going on with your body than maybe you do. So what's that fine line like and how do you how do you talk to people about advocating for themselves in a way that ultimately serves them uh, in the best way possible? I'd like to say you have to be polite but persistent. So like if somebody's waiting for a test, an MRI, just call. Call to see if there's a cancellation. Get to know the front desk woman um, or man. Like it, there's nothing wrong with calling. And sometimes if I'm dealing with my own stuff, I'll say up front, I'll be like, Hey, do you mind if I, I'm, I'm going to be that person that probably calls every morning at eight 30. Is that okay? And they, they kind of laugh and they're like, yeah, sure. So I remind them that like, you know, we're all just doing our best out here, including those who are running radiology teams and blood work teams. So as long as you're persistent, you get in their faces, you make sure they know who you are. Um, that's like number one is just follow up, call, call again. Um, and then also just not being complacent with stag like being stagnant. Um, that's a big one. And just saying like, yeah, I'm going to PT. I'm putting in the things I'm, I'm going through the motions. Um, my, my physical therapist thinks I'm doing well. And I'll say, well, do you think you're doing well? And the answer might not, m might be no. And so then it's like, all right, well, what can should maybe you get a second opinion? So a lot of it is me dropping breadcrumbs for them to figure out. I'm not going to make decisions about their health, but I, I'm their partner and I want to make sure that they feel in control about the decisions that they're making for their own health. That's really helpful. Thank you for getting into that. Before we get going, I do have to ask, since you are running the race, what are your goals for the race and what are you hoping to get out of it? I mean, I would love to just see a marathon finish line. It's been seven years. I've been through a lot. Um, I The training has been quite different than anything I've ever been through. Um, so I would say time goals, I guess my fitness puts me between 310 and 315, but truly, like, I'm just happy to be here. I don't want to run like an idiot. I would really like to have a good last 10K. Um, I've heard that if you're not smart on this course, kind of just eats you up. So I want to get through, like, 18 to 20 feeling pretty good and then bring it home. I love it. All right. If someone wants to learn more about you and or Lift, Run, Perform, where can they go? LiftRunPerform.com is our website. Um, we also have an Instagram. My own personal Instagram name is It's a Marathon. Ironic. I haven't run one in a while, but that's why I'm doing it. It's just to get that credit back. <laughs> I love it. All right, everybody. Thank you, Mary. Thank you.